Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. Today's guest is Ash Regan, who's standing to be the next leader of the SNP and the next First Minister of Scotland. Obviously, Kate Forbes was on the show uh, a couple of weeks ago and uh, Ash is on the show today. Before I come on to that, just to let you know, my next guests at the live shows at the Duchess Theatre in London are as follows. On the 20th of March, I'm joined by Channel 4 News' Krishnan Guru Murthy, one of the most talented broadcasters in the country. On the 3rd of April, I'm joined by the former leader of the Scottish Conservatives, Ruth Davidson, and that will be just a few days after the SNP have chosen their new leader, so that'll be a great night to discuss uh, Scottish politics. On the 17th of April, the megastar that is, Jess Phillips. On the 22nd of May, the oh my word, the new Labour heavyweight that is, David Blunkett. On the 5th of June, former Chancellor Philip Hammond, who gives very few interviews, so that will be a real uh, rare opportunity uh, to see one of the most influential people in the Conservative Party in the country, up close and personal, live and direct at the Duchess Theatre. You can get tickets for all those shows by clicking the link that I put in the blurb. Uh, on to today's show uh, with Ash Regan, who's been thrust into the spotlight. I guess all three of the candidates have, uh, but her... Uh, her, uh, her, I always try and find a polite word. They're opponents, really, in this term, aren't they? But I always try and say colleagues or... Because people are in the same party and they're running against each other. But obviously in this contest, they're opponents, even if they're friendly with each other. Um, whereas Kate Forbes and Hamza Yusuf perhaps had a bit more profile. Hamza Yusuf, especially before uh, the contest, Ash Regan has done this um, uh, with a little less profile. So we do talk about that at the start, just to, almost a way the culture shock of being all of a sudden in uh, a, a battle to be the next leader of the country in which you live. It's a big deal. Um, we also talk in detail about Asher's plans um, for uh, independence, um, for uh, what if Westminster says no to her plan and her plan to refresh the SNP and just a lot of other stuff about the culture of the party, the things that she thinks needs to change, the way that the SNP would make the case for independence if she was leader and um, a whole lot of other stuff as well. And it's always interesting to talk to people who are in a leadership contest because the rest of the time, obviously, there's a sense of collective responsibility. In a leadership contest, people still have their loyalties, but in a leadership contest, you really get a sense of more where people stand because they're they're make they're telling you more about what they really believe, and you get a sense of what are the different wings within a political party and where is the centre of gravity within a party. And obviously, as we talk about, other political parties have been through this <laughs> a lot more regularly, uh, the Labour Party and the Tory Party, obviously. Um, and then you always get that it tells you where the membership is. And that's what's so fascinating about this, that really this is the first time for a very long time, because Nicholas Sturgeon was effectively elected unopposed, that the SNP has had a leadership contest. So it's a real unique opportunity to test uh, the uh, the the opinion uh, of the of the members of the party that runs Scotland. So there's a whole load in this, and uh, I will now stop prattling on uh, and uh, enjoy Ash Regan.
Delighted to be joined by Ash Regan, who's standing to be the next leader of the SNP, the next First Minister of Scotland. Ash, I mean, the last couple of weeks must have been a whirlwind for you. Are you enjoying the process of standing for the leadership? It has been a whirlwind. I think probably more for me than for the others, because I did not go into politics. You know, I got elected in 2016 and I didn't go in there with my, I think some people go in, right? I'm just, I'm not giving away trade secrets here, but some people go in and you can clearly see from the beginning, they've got their eye on that top job and they maneuver and they do certain things in order to get themselves into that position. I'm not going to name any names here, but I think you might have an idea of who I'm talking about. Anyway, I never did that. I mean, you can tell that from my social media output, you know, for things I got involved in, I just did my job and went home and lived my life, you know? I got to the point though, I mean, obviously you'll know all the stuff that went out in over the gender reform and everything. And I started to feel that the leadership, my view of the leadership was that we'd lost our way on a few things. We were starting to get into territory where the public were losing trust and respect in the government. And then by extension, that was damaging our chances of independence. And so you sit there and you think, right, well, if I think this, and then you look around and you think who's gonna go forward. And we ha obviously we had an idea of who might go forward. And I just thought, I think that we need to go in a different direction here. And I wasn't sure that the other people that would put themselves forward would, would want to do what needed to be done. So that's how I found myself in this contest, because I knew that I, that I wanted to do things in a different way. And I wasn't sure that anyone else would want to do what I wanted to do. So that's so I found myself in this. And um, it, some of it's enjoyable, but obviously other parts of it is, you know, we, I haven't had any time off until this morning for weeks now. So this was the first morning that I actually had a long lie and I was able to, you know, have breakfast. You know, it has just been just constant. Um, and obviously, I'm probably giving you too long an answer here, but obviously when people are now, you know, they're quite frustrated with us, I think, that we haven't got the detail and we haven't set out full policy platforms. But the contest was was so short, you know, just really a week or two to kind of get that stuff arranged. It's just not possible to set out that level of detail. And also we don't have access, well, I don't have access to, you know, teams of civil servants or advisors or anything like that. I've got basically got three volunteers and one paid staffer because the budget's really little. It's like £5,000. You can't, you can't do a lot with that. So that was kind of a long answer to your short question. No, it's a great answer. And, and obviously it's one thing to sit there as a politician, even one that hasn't been uh, sort of as near to the sort of, I suppose, the government level that, that some of your... Um, you know, the other two candidates might be, but you're still an MSP, you're, you're, you're a full-time politician. To sit there and think, I can do a better job than these people, it's then another to take that step and put yourself forward. And obviously, it, it, you're all of a sudden having to do TV debates against people who are your colleagues, people that, <clears throat> of course, you'll have disagreement with, but, you know, that is a ferocious, piercing spotlight to be under, and it's a lot yeah. of pressure on you individually. I mean, you've gone from being an MSP to all of a sudden being live on the telly, it feels like every night, it, <laughs> you know, effectively having to attack your colleagues. I mean, it, it, that must be quite a hard thing to it all is. of a sudden be doing. It is a hard thing to all of a sudden be doing. And also, if you think about it, I haven't had any training for this. You know, um, in the SNP, we don't do, we don't do any, the party does no training for MSPs when they get first get elected. And um, the parliament um, gave us a couple of hours of training for like media training or speech writing or whatever. Um, but obviously for me, that was 2016. So you kind of just learn on the job. And obviously if you haven't done as much media, um, you won't have as much experience in doing that. So I would definitely, you know, I'm less well-known than the other two. And I've definitely had less experience of operating at that level of media scrutiny. Now, obviously it's something you can learn to get better at. I've had to learn to get better at this literally within days. 
So it has, it's been a very steep learning curve, but I'm learning that I can do it. So I suppose that's something. And is it difficult for you because only SNP members can vote in this, but obviously the whole country, I mean, not just yeah. the whole of Scotland, the UK is watching and of course people elsewhere. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got to pitch to members who were very keen on the person who's just gone while yeah. simultaneously offering change, which means distancing yourself from the person they really like. I mean, that's quite a difficult tightrope yeah. for all three of you to walk. It is. but So the, we're not all on the same page on that. So obviously, you know, Hamza is very much presenting himself as, you know, the continuity candidate. So that's, you know, he's very much in the camp saying nothing's wrong. We've no, we have no issues as a party. Everything's fabulous. And I'll just keep going the way we've been going. Well, I don't agree with that. And I think we can see we've lost a lot of members over the last, um, you know, recent while. And a lot of them have written to me and told me why they've left. And so I think there are issues that need to be addressed. So I, I think you have to be able to, because we were obviously we were getting a lot of um, stick. I think last week, particularly Kate was getting it for kind of questioning Hamza at that first TV debate, you know, in a way that perhaps the opposition might have spoken about him. Um, and, but, you know, we're in a contest, you know, and people are in it to, to win it. And, you know, you don't agree with necessarily the positions that you're, you're, you know, the other candidates have put forward, or you think there's massive holes in their arguments, for instance. So you have to be able to, to have that contest. We can't all just sit there, you know, um, and kind of accepting. So I, I was very clear that we have to be able to set out an alternate vision of where we would want to go. And that would include pointing out where you think we've made mistakes. So yes, we all, we all think Nicola's an amazing politician, but I think we're at the point now where we have to go in a different direction, or that's how certainly are how I feel about it. Um, obviously, other candidates have different views on that. But yeah, I think it's been a bit of um, I think it's certainly true to say it's been a bit of a shock to the system for the party. We're a party of intense levels of self-discipline. And we haven't had a contest like this for a very long time. And I think some people are genuinely quite shocked by seeing us arguing with each other. But, you know, I mean, the Tories are used to this. They do this all the time. You know, Labour has a new leader every five to six months. They manage that process OK. So it's just because we're not used to it, I think. I think that's what it is, actually. And I wonder if actually that's something for the party to reflect on, that the iron discipline thing actually came at a huge price, that you weren't allowed external dissent where the public actually expects. They know that the Tories are split, not just on Europe, but on various things, that there's a more liberal and a more conservative wing. They know that within the Labour Party, there are Blairites and Corbynistas. And yet, in a way, for a period of time, the SNP seems to have pretended that there are no wings, when actually, of course there are. And yeah. it's perfectly healthy to have them. And I, I wonder if if you're successful, whether you would allow a bit more um, open public debate about any issue than perhaps mm. previous leaders have allowed. Yes, well, that certainly is one of my issues with the the way the party's been run laterally, was the lack of democracy at the party level. You know, the difficulty for ordinary branches getting, I mean, this is getting into sort of SNP governance, whatever, but the difficulty that they were telling me they were having with getting things onto the agenda to be discussed at conference. You know, it was just, it was an iron grip on that. Um, the fact that, you know, the, the party structure had, had been changed a lot recently. To just give you an example, uh, the, the leadership contest in the constitution used to be four months. That used to be the timetable set out for that. And it, it got changed. They were actually someone from who's on the current NEC said to me on Saturday that they were trying to make this contest two weeks and that he and a few others then said, hang on, this is ridiculous and got it up to three weeks. Now, you know, I mean, this is what I was trying to say last night when I was getting put under pressure about not being able to answer certain questions is that. You know, obviously we're appealing to SNP members here, but this is not like a contest to be the leader of the Liberal Democrats in Scotland, right, where you've got four seats. We are the dominant, you know, political force in Scotland. 
and the person that wins this will go on to become the first minister. This is a different level of scrutiny, you know, where we should have full transparency and everything. It should all be accountable to give people the trust and confidence in this process. You know, trying to do that over such a few weeks, personally, I don't think it's appropriate. I mean, I'm in it and I'm 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 working to the timeframes and everything I've been given, but this would not be my preference. And I think it's inappropriate for that for something as important as this to be carried out in the way that it has been. And why do you think the people in charge of the process, and perhaps we can come on to who they are, have preferred a shorter campaign? I, I couldn't tell you, other than perhaps there's a, a need to steady the ship in some way, and we need to get a new leader in position fast, or Nicola wants to leave very quickly, maybe she wants to go, I don't, I don't know. I think we can only speculate. I don't know the answers. I mean, obviously, you can see all sides of this. Sometimes when leadership contests are prolonged, parties say, oh, my God, we're going to spend the whole summer tearing each other to shreds. We can't have that. <laughs> but as you say, you're not, you are the party of government, so there has to be a sense that the yeah. candidates at least have left Edinburgh for a couple of days and gone somewhere else for a debate and that, you know, that the whole country can see what's happening. Obviously, the chief exec of the SNP is Peter Morrill, the husband of Nicola Sturgeon. People meet at work, they fall in love, that's life. But... It, it does make it odd when obviously this is a political party and the process itself is political. If there's a perceived favoured candidate, and let's be honest, that would probably be Hamza Youssef. Yeah. And you've got the person, <laughs> the political colleagues that are married to each other. I mean, I know you have concerns over that. I mean, it, it, it does seem strange. You use the analogy about Carrie Johnson and, and Boris Johnson. that it, yeah. In a way, would it, would it not have been better for the party to hand this over to someone else or for Peter Morrill to have resigned when Nicola Sturgeon yes. did and say, I'm not going to be part of this process? Absolutely, it would have. You know, and that's why I think there is a, a level of concern about the way the process is being carried out. You know, and I'm being accused of, you know, getting my excuses in or whatever, but I think that's really inappropriate to be saying that. I think we all understand that, like because what we've just set out, that this person is going to become the first minister. You know, there's a level of scrutiny on this process that wouldn't necessarily be there. In you know, it's being run in the same way. We have internal selection contests all the time for, you know, office bearers at the national level and also for what we would call selection contests, you know, to become the candidate to stand in an election, whether that's council, you know, MSP or MP level. Um, and we run them all the time. It's the same company that we use for, for all of this. So no one is suggesting that there's anything wrong with the company or that, you know, there's you know that things are being done in a way that they shouldn't be but what we are saying is that in order to give that that level of assurance in the trust in the process uh, that what i've called for and i think um kate's team might be um you know starting to say the same things now because i had a, a quick chat with michelle thompson last night who's working on kate's team and i think she was going to put out something this morning about having an auditor so trade union ballots i think have to be audited by an independent um i don't know if it's an independent observer or an independent company or something but we don't have that in this process. So I think that's a that's a definitely a gap there. Um, yes, personally, I think um, Peter should have recused himself from the, from the the oversight of this, and I think we should use a, an independent company, you know, not a company that we normally use. So it's a completely fresh, different one, and we should have um, a neutral observer who's overseeing the process, and then everyone would have, you know, everyone it would be transparent and everyone would have complete confidence in it. So at the moment, I, my feeling is the membership don't have confidence in this process. So even if that's if that's a perception and that perception is wrong, the way to counter that is to obviously enhance the the, the um, transparency of the process. And what about relations between the three of you? Um, it, are you friendly with each other backstage? Do you talk to each other? Yeah, Kate. So I'll do. It, I'll be completely honest. Kate, Kate and I are friends and have been friends for many years now. Um, but 
uh, Hums and I, I would say we're colleagues. You know, we, we have a, a good civil relationship. We've worked together closely in the past, but I, I, we, wouldn't call it, we wouldn't call each other pals or buddies or anything like that. And you obviously resigned from the government over gender reform. It's become a, a huge issue. Um, mm -hmm. Undoubtedly, one of the things that hastened Nicola Sturgeon's departure. I just wonder about where um, Scottish public opinion is and, and where SNP members' opinion is compared to perhaps where Nicola Sturgeon's opinion was. Do you, do you think Nicola Sturgeon on on that issue was was out of step? I mean, she was clearly out of step with the Scottish public, but do you think she was out of step with the membership as well? I do, yeah, absolutely do. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there's been some opinion polling on this and the if we can just use it, if we just use the term progressive, I know that doesn't sum it up, but just, you know what I mean, I think the, the audience will know what I'm talking about. I think the SNP are slightly more progressive than the general public, but even within the SNP, uh, I would say that the you know self-ID and many of the things that are associated with that, and if we um, also widen that out to trans prisoner allocation, etc., they're more in step with the general public's views on this than they are with the leaderships. I, I, I guess there's a danger, actually, that, and, and this is where the, the previous leader or the current leader became unstuck, is, is actually mm -hmm. people perceive that the changes weren't progressive, that... They were they were being um, enacted by people who perceived them to be and and believe themselves to be progressive and in other areas uh, undoubtedly are but th these reforms themselves actually felt regressive these felt like an yes. attack on women's rights these felt like a step well, they, back rather than a yeah step I think they are and I, I obviously made that case but I also think that if you look at you know the way we're treating you know trans children in particular and you I don't know if you've seen this sort of interim cash review but there is some suggestion in there that you know we are not safeguarding. Um, you know, particularly gay children by by kind of forcing them down this medical route. So I, I would also possibly think there's an argument to be made there that the way we're approaching this issue could even be homophobic as well as sexist. So, yeah, it's a whole can of worms. I mean, whatever happens next will be fascinating. You've got, I don't know, what, three weeks left? Two weeks left? Two weeks, yeah. Just under two weeks, I think it is, yeah. And what's your sense of... Have you frozen a bit there? Oh, no, have I? Have I am frozen now? I missed a little bit of what you said before you oh, said I, that I last bit. It? Um, what, what's your sense of where you are in the running at this stage of the contest? And there's absolutely no way to tell. That's the thing. Uh, we don't, um, I haven't, I asked to know what the membership, the current membership figures were, and I wasn't given a number. There's obviously been some speculation in the press. Um, I think the party have said that the membership figures, I think, are 78,000. So we're not entirely sure, because obviously that means we'll have lo we've lost a lot of members. So I think we maybe don't, we're down 50,000. So it's very difficult to tell because we don't have the information, you know, what the demographic makeup is of the of the party membership right now. So we don't know. So it's very difficult to tell. And I think the, the, the media, I think, are having trouble a little bit with this as well. Because there's such an interest from the public, because the person's going to be the first minister, um, you know, they're interested in what, you know, the general public think, but actually the general public don't get a vote. You know, it's just the, the S&P membership. And even, and I would say even the membership of the S&P will have different views to the, even to S&P voters. You know, it's a, it's a very distinct category of people who obviously have, you know, certain views about things. And I would say they, you know, have strong views on progress towards independence, for instance, as being a key issue for them. So if I'm right about that, I should have a very high level of support. So, but if, surely if you're a candidate in, a, in an election like this, and this may yeah. feel like an internal question, but actually this is this is really important. Surely you should be able to get the data on how many members you have because you've got to contact yeah. them directly. To We're not allowed to contact them directly. So 
in a normal selection contest, and I've been in several, so I, I have a good basis of understanding for this, you would get um, what we would call like, emails to the membership. So last time I stood, you know, there was a constituency of, of the, of something like 1700 members. And I got multiple emails, as did all the other candidates, to, to speak to them directly, send links, photos, biograph, you know, anything you want to send them to make your case about why they should vote for you. Um, but in this contest, we haven't been given that. We haven't been able to contact the members directly at all. And what's the reason for that? I haven't been given a reason. But that seems, I mean, every other selection process I've been aware of, can yeah. the whole point is that members would want you to contact them. Well, of course they would. And the other thing is as well, you know, that obviously I can see I've got a good level of support on social media, but not all the members are on social media. I, I want to have an opportunity to talk to other members and set my kit, set out my stall, if you like, which I would love to do through an email. Even if I got one email, I could set out, here's me talking about certain things on Radio 4. Here's, you know, and then this is the argument about this. This is my independent strategy or whatever. And I, I can't do that to everyone. And the voting started because we haven't been given that facility, which is, but, so it's highly unusual. I will say that it's highly unusual not to be able to contact the membership, the, you know, the people that are voting in any way. Usually you also get phone numbers and you're able to phone people. Um, so for, again, if we had that data, I have teams of people across the country who would be more than willing to make 50 phone calls each for me. Um, and we're not allowed to do that either. So it's a very unusual contest. I, you know, it's very unusual. But is there even like a sort of centrally coordinated thing where you send your mail shot to head office and they send it to the membership for you? No, not as far as I'm aware. So what they have done is they've put up a statement from each of us on that you can access, I think, from, you know, when you go in to vote, you can click and, and read what people have said. And there's a photograph. Now, they did record a video of all of us um, about a week ago, and they said they were going to send that video and that that would go out with the ballots. But I haven't received that video yet, but I see Hamza's is up now. Um, so, I, yeah. I don't know what's happening. I can't believe that <laughs> in a contest to pick any party leader in Britain in, in 2023, yeah. um, that you wouldn't be able to target, you wouldn't be able to talk to people uh, who were able no. to talk to you. I, yeah, let's just say very, very unusual situation that we're in. And I feel like it's not appropriate to not be able to contact the members because then you're you're filtering all this then, aren't you? So the membership can obviously watch TV, the TV debates. I mean, the first two, it was sound bites. There was no, we weren't getting into the substance of it. Um, I would say the last one was very much sort of filtered through a sort of a UK vision of, of what Scotland is. So that maybe that's not that helpful either. So they've got that to go on. They, if they're on social media, they can obviously access people's websites and Twitter and things like that. And you can look at that. And then the rest of it's the newspapers, which is again, all filtered through a certain prism. You know, okay, we have the national newspaper. Um, but, you know, everything else, I mean, they're twisting everything you say. So, you know, I make one comment and then I'm very surprised by then how I, I see it represented in the newspapers. So, you know, that's not giving people a sort of a fair way to set out their stall and then let people judge, you know, based on what you're saying. It's sort of filtered through what people think you're saying or they think you might have said or, you know, so we're back to all that. So it's very, it's very difficult. Well, let this podcast episode be the only place. Um... <laughs> The only place that you can say exactly what you think and it will go purely uh, purely into members' ears. Obviously, other people will be listening as well. Um, uh, I think it was on the Channel 4, or was it Sky last night? You said that you were the only candidate with a published plan for legally achieving independence, a plan for if Westminster says no, and a plan to improve the yeah. SNP. So yeah. um, this is effectively your manifesto, so let's get into it. Um, yeah. What is your plan for legally achieving independence? Yeah, so... I mean, this is the one of the key points I think we're at, where we're at, I feel we're at a crossroads really, where we've been doing 
you know, and it's not entirely our fault because we're working for the system that we've, you know, we've been given. So we're obviously in a situation where we've been winning elections, trying to use that as a moral mandate to then ask for a referendum. And the UK government, um, as is, it is in their gift to then say no, that they were not going to give us a referendum. But it's been quite a long time now since the last referendum. So I don't think it's unreasonable to want to ask the Scottish public again, you know, maybe they have a different opinion on this than they did last time, especially because of all the things that have been happening. So it's been quite a busy time. You know, we've had Brexit and we've had a cost of living crisis and we've had, you know, Liz Trust disastrously in charge of the economy for 15 minutes, which, you know, ruined everyone's mortgages. And, you know, so there's a lot been going on. And I think it's entirely appropriate to be able to, certainly if you're in the SNP, to want to ask the Scottish public again about that. And also, if you look at um, Northern Ireland, obviously they've got a different arrangement there. And they wrote into that the, the, the potential to have another, you know, to have a, a border poll every seven years if that was, you know, requested. And if rising support showed that it, you know, was possible to do that, where we don't have that facility. So what I'm suggesting is that because lots of countries have become independent, I'm not talking about ones that have left the UK or the British Empire, but, you know, in a wider context, most of them don't use referendums. Referendums, it's one way to do it, but it's not the way to do it necessarily. Um, and what's a referendum based on? It's just based on an election, isn't it? It's based on the ballot box. So this is what I'm suggesting is that we use what we have access to and all we have access to without, if we don't get permission for Westminster to do it, is the normal elections that we'd have in Scotland. So obviously the next one is probably going to be the next general election. And then the one after that would be the next Scottish election. And so what I'm suggesting is that we use that just as a trigger. And um, we set out very clearly in the SNP manifesto that this isn't from any kind of mandate. This is literally to begin negotiations to leave the UK. And everyone knows what they're voting for. And we can also be joined by other priority parties. So, you know, if the Green Party want to put it in their manifesto, if ALBA wants to put it in their manifesto, if ISP and so on, any party that wants to join in is obviously, you know, we'd be welcome to do that. And then if we get, you know, the trigger point obviously is 50% plus one, but I would, and I'm not, you know, that's the, the minimum, right? So I would like it to be much higher, but I'm saying that that would represent a majority. And the other thing is, I think to remember is that this used to be um, SNP policy, but it used to be based on majority of seats. So I'm going further, setting a higher hurdle and saying it should be majority of votes cast. And, you know, in the 90s, and I think in the 80s, I'm going, I'm going a while back now, because that Thatcher said, you know, this was legitimate, it was acceptable, you know, because it was democratic. So I'm suggesting that when what's happening at the moment is the UK is preventing Scotland expressing its will because it doesn't want Scotland to say it wants to leave the UK, right? So it's using the mechanisms it has available to it to say, we just won't let Scotland choose. I'm saying that's not acceptable and that Scotland shouldn't be held hostage in this way. And let's use what we have. And should Scotland express that democratic mandate, I believe the UK will, you know, will accept that. Um, Isn't there a danger that actually the Scottish public's view is... They want the SNP to run Scotland, but they don't want to be independent. And and that's the conundrum that Nicola Sturgeon wasn't able to solve. Mm. And that I don't think, that's where opinion uh, is. I don't think that's the case. I think there are people who who feel like that. Definitely, there are. But I think there's a lot there. I think that, you know, roughly, I would say we are about 50-50. I know the polls go up and down. So we've been over 50. And we're Sometimes we're a bit under 50. I think we're a bit under 50 at the moment. I think that's obviously because, you know, we're in there's a leadership contest going on right now. Um, we haven't been making the case for independence for a really long time. So there's, you know, I think fresh leadership could, you know, go some a long way to resolving that and getting it back to around the 50% or more, ideally. Um, but I think that, you know, if you look, Scotland, 
I'm, you know, I want Scotland to be to running its own affairs. I think many people do. And, you know, there's a lot of issues in Scotland that we have not been able to resolve under devolution. And I think that that doesn't show that, you know, Scotland is rubbish at running its own affairs. To me, it says that the devolution settlement is designed in order to keep, you know, sort of to mean that these problems are almost impossible to solve. So if we look at, you know, child poverty has come up a lot, you know, and it's a scandal. You know, if Scotland was an independent country, we'd be something like the 15th richest country in the world, in the world, right? So there's no reason for kids in Scotland to be going to bed hungry and cold, right? But they are. Now, we've spent millions and millions of pounds, uh, the Scottish government mitigating what we see as, you know, disastrous economic policy coming from Westminster. So we spend lots of money mitigating that. And yet we are still not budging, you know, essentially. I mean, we have slightly better child poverty rates than the rest of the UK, but it's still not acceptable, right? So to my mind, don't just carry on with what we've got and just say, oh, well, devolutions, you know, it's, it, we need another party in charge. I don't fundamentally don't think that will work. I think what, we, what this is showing is that we need ambitions for Scotland that go beyond devolution. And that is how we're going to solve some of these problems, primarily by getting the Tories away from managing the economy would be my first um, suggestion. I mean, some people might say then people have to vote Labour at the general election. That's the only way to do it. Well, I, and I think it's looking very likely that, that you know, Labour will win the next election. Um, and perhaps we might end up in a, we might not be in the same political stalemate. I mean, I think here Starmer is saying that he also wouldn't grant a referendum. But, you know, historically, I think the Labour Party have, well, at least in recent times anyway, have been more, I feel, have been slightly more sympathetic to, to democracy and to, to Scotland expressing its, its will. But we'll see. I, I personally don't think that, you know, having Labour in at the UK level is going to save us all. But, you know, people are entitled to that view if they like. And what's your plan if Westminster says no to, to your plan? Yeah, so we I've set out, it's quite a long document, and it's basically based on what I'm calling, it's sort of four pillars, if you like, of how it would work. So the first one is that, you know, we live in a democracy. And, you know, the we are in a democratic culture where you know, democratic outcomes are recognised and they have been. So, you know, the um, elections in Scotland are run by the same electoral commission that runs the one in the UK. So I think we'd be getting into a very dangerous situation if we had UK government ministers, which were suggesting that they wouldn't recognise the outcome of an election in Scotland. So I think that's the first thing. And the second thing is obviously, you know, there's international law. The Scottish ministers have spent quite a lot of time, you know, abroad talking to other countries and setting out, you know, Scotland's position. And I think there's a large amount of sympathy for Scotland internationally. Um, and I think that would, I think they would recognise the democratic mandate coming from Scotland in that way. Um, then we've got the opportunity that we could um, choose the timing of our own election. So at the moment we have the fixed, you know, we have the fixed term parliament, but it's possible. I went to see the parliamentary clerks about this and one of my MP colleagues did the same down south. And we can pass a bill that will change so that we can remove the two thirds majority needed in order to call an election. So it would just go to a simple majority. So that means that we would then choose, we could choose the timing of the next election. So that might be useful as well. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we would, you know, um, call an election tomorrow or anything like that. I don't think that's appropriate, but I think it's good to have that facility should we need to use it in the future. So you could then use a Scottish election for the purposes that I've set out of the, for the voter empowerment mechanism. And then the the Final one is that obviously we're a constitutional monarchy. So the first minister would be required to attend audiences with the king, who is the head of state. And, you know, you'd be a member of the Privy Council, etc. So I think if the UK 
was going to be ill-advisedly not recognise what Scotland has chosen democratically, there would be an opportunity, obviously, to bring that up with the head of state as well. And I think that the UK, whoever was in charge of the UK, would probably be very unwise to get it, to get let it get to that sort of situation, if you see what I mean. <laughs> Does your, your instincts tell you that um, the king would be sympathetic to Scottish independence or not? Well, he's, I've looked at some speeches that he's made recently, and um, I feel he is. He talks about, you know, the long road to self-governance and self-determination being a goal and all that. So I, I think he would. Also, you've got to remember, you know, he is, um, you know, the, the royal family in general, I think, holds the people of Scotland in very high regard. You know, they love to spend time in Scotland and I think they understand the Scottish people. So, no, I don't think they would want to stand in the way of Scottish self-determination either. Is there not a problem with the whole plan, that actually? It's the Scottish public that would be... Uh perhaps the most offended, where they'd say, look, you can't, once you've established, having had a referendum in 2014, obviously a Brexit one in 2016, that there is a, certainly mm -hmm. in the modern era, we say, well, constitutional things like this are settled by referendums, and that's only fair. But it's not fair to take my vote for my local MP or MSP and, and mm -hmm. effectively misrepresent it in that way. I want you to recognize, I want you to represent me at a local or a national level, but I'm, I'm not keen on independence. That Actually, this would cause a whole load of unintended consequences between the party's relationship with its own public and some of its own supporters. Well, it is true to say, you know, that there are people who vote SNP who don't want Scottish independence. That is that is fair. That's true. I know that to be the case. So, but I think if it's set out in the manifesto and it's in line one of the manifesto for us and for others, and obviously the, the parties that don't want independence can have the reverse, you know, vote for us to, to, to not, then everyone knows what they're voting for. You know, it's be very clear. So if you're in the you know the percentage of people that are, you know vote SNP but don't want independence for, for that election you will know you know you you'll you no doubt choose to use your vote in another way isn't there something unsatisfying about that though wouldn't you rather have a referendum win it fair and square and ultimately you'd want a referendum and, and a referendum is more likely to be granted when there is a, a consistent majority of the Scottish public who want it and, and the problem is that that's just never been achieved and, and that's the that's well, the part of the problem that's the issue not yeah I don't that. agree with that I think I I don't have any confidence in the the idea that if you know we, we were consistently polling let's say 53 percent that the Westminster would turn around and give us a referendum but would you I want just, one I mean for you wouldn't it be more yes. sensible to I give mean, it if to they were gonna, so yes. win it yeah, if, you know, if Rishi rang me up later, you know, he'll probably watch the podcast and he'll ring me up and he'll be like, Ash, I will give you a referendum. I'll be like, Rishi, great, you know, come fly to Edinburgh, let's do the paperwork. But, it's, you know, Matt, do you really think that that's going to happen? It's not going to happen. So, yes, of course I would. Of course I would take that. But what I'm saying is that what I'm setting out is based on watching this strategy fail for year after year after year. And my view is that, you know, that there is international law, self-determination, you know, it's a, an established concept. And that if the Scottish people want to express a view on this, they should be allowed to do that. That's, you know, that's fundamentally where I'm coming from, is that this is a democratic choice that should be offered to Scotland. I believe that many people have watched in dismay, you know, some of the stuff that's happened over the last nine years, you know, and fundamentally things have changed beyond recognition. You know, we, many people believed the no campaign and thought that they were voting against Scotland becoming independent to protect their place in the EU. Well, look how that turned out. So, you know, people have got a right to be able to revisit this, this situation and maybe think differently about it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, just to be clear then... If Westminster says no, what do you what do you do? Well, just uh, obviously, I think I personally think it'd be democratic outrage, you know, if Scotland votes for this and they don't recognise it. Because if you think about it, just reverse it in your mind a little bit. If we let's say we got fifty three percent in twenty fourteen, and then the UK government just said, "Oh well, we're not going to we're not going to recognise that," you know, there'd be outrage. So I don't think it will come to that. I think in all the countries where, so now if I talk about the ones that have left the British Empire, UK, all the countries and the peaceful ones, you know, the UK started off saying no, but eventually they did say yes. So I think we just have to recognise there will be bluster here and they will say they won't negotiate. But I think eventually, I think they will. I, I don't think you can stand in against democracy like that. If Scotland has has shown strongly that it wants to leave the UK, I think they should be allowed to do that. And I don't think the UK should should stand by and, and force Scotland to stay in. It's not it's not a credible long-term situation, I don't think, to be forcing people to stay as part of your, what we're always being told, aren't we? It's a voluntary state. So if it is voluntary, we should be able to express a desire to not, to not be part of it anymore. Is there a danger that actually, in a leadership contest, you have to differentiate yourself from hmm. your counterpart? So in a way, if one person's saying, actually, I'm going to do it in a more gradual way, uh, you've got to say, well, I'll go further. I'll deliver independence faster. Than actually, do you really think this is credible or are you having to say it because you're in a leadership contest? I don't have to say it. I mean, the other two are not are not saying that they'll do this. You know, they're saying, well, I'm not really sure what they're saying. And it, it does change a little bit. Uh, it has changed a little bit as the weeks have gone on. And they're certainly taught, let's just put it this way. They're certainly talking about independence more than they would be if I wasn't in this contest. So I'm certainly leading the debate to an extent on issues like independent strategy, on issues like infrastructure, the currency question, all of this. You know, had I not been in this debate, we wouldn't, you know, then we wouldn't be talking about this. Now, it's perfectly legitimate to be, you know, in, you know, we're, at the beginning, we were talking about wings of the party, weren't we? And uh, it's so there's always this thing in the SP that we have the gradualist wing and we have the fundamentalist wing. So it's entirely appropriate that maybe in this contest, we have representations of the gradualist wing and the fundamentalist wing. So, you know, so it's, it's out there. So people can listen to everyone's what they're setting out and they can decide, you know, do they think the gradual approach is going to work or are they, are they fed up with the gradual approach and they want to try something else? And that's, you know, only the members can decide that for themselves. And do you think actually, obviously Alex Salmond was one of the, the great gradualists, um, that people like him and, and people who are sort of... Uh, you know, would, would still admire him within the party, actually are coming to a more fundamentalist position. Yeah, People have been well, they are. Journey. I mean, Nicola was, was suggesting, wasn't she, towards the end there, that she was going to put a de facto referendum to conference. 
I think um, a de facto referendum, I haven't actually checked, but I think that might be what Alex Simon is suggesting. So it's, that's not what I'm suggesting. It is slightly different. I mean, it's similar, but it's not exactly the same. And the other thing about mine is that it would be each and every election. So it's not a one-off, you know, the de facto referendum is a one-off. And um, I don't think that's appropriate for the next general election, because I think like we're talking about Labour versus Tory, cost of living, energy and so on. The public, you know, are this is not probably the top of their list. They've got other things they want to talk about. So I think single issue elections at this time, at the time we're in at the moment with this sort of economic mess that the UK is in is not wise, is how I would put it. But yes, so I think, you know, we're working through scenarios, aren't we? And if you're going, it's like you're in a maze and you're going down and you're going down and you keep turning corners and then you get to the end and it's blocked. You've got to retrace your steps and then think, right, I'm going to go in a different direction. So I'm, a, I'm just putting out what I see as a, a possible solution to this. And it's up to the membership to decide if they want a leader who's going to try that. So I suppose I would summarize my position as being a bit less passive and not accepting that Westminster has a veto over the will of the Scottish people. And I think I believe that's a legitimate position to have. Um, and then to, to give that power back to the people of Scotland and let them choose. So if the membership like the sound of that and they want someone that's going to stand up to Westminster, then, you know, I would hope they would consider voting for me as their number one. The third element was a plan to improve the SNP. So what does that involve? Yeah. yeah. So there, a lot of people have approached me recently and said that they would like to go back to the structures that the party had a few years. It's not even that long ago, but it's a few years ago now um, in terms of, you know, the, how the NEC is run in terms of internal democracy. So I've, I've put a whole plan online um, for people to go and have a look at if they're interested in that type of thing. And the idea is we'll go back to the structures we used to have. It will increase you know, trans, well, I've got some ideas from transparency, but it will increase that level of party democracy so that all the decisions, the big decisions will go through the party and membership, that they're able to contribute policy because I think there's been a frustration. Um, we also have a problem where, you know, we choose policy, but then it doesn't get reflected by the government. So an example of that would be on currency. So in 2019 at conference, the membership of the party said that they didn't agree with the growth commission and the five tests and all that for moving very slowly to, or, or maybe never, to a Scottish currency. And they said, actually, no, we agree with the proposition that Tim Rydat's putting forward, and we want a Scottish currency as soon as possible. Um, but I'm the only person in this contest that's reflecting that, but that is the SNP party policy. Um, so we also have an issue with transparency. So we started this conversation with me telling you that I didn't know how many members we had. So I would like to publish that information, you know, maybe on a quarterly basis, and publish how much money the party has, you know, so everything's upfront and transparent so that everyone has confidence, you know, in the way things are being run and where we are. Um, so I've made those kind of suggestions and also about sharing good practice across the party, helping people to get involved, sharing skills and all that kind of stuff. So more of a way of kind of bringing everyone together, helping everyone get involved, being, you know, more accountable, more transparent. So it's a, an idea, I suppose it's modernization, if you like, um, sort of an overhaul of the way we're doing things. And what about the relationship with the Scottish Greens? Are you comfortable being in a coalition with them? I think that we definitely have issues where we're aligned. Obviously, independence would be the obvious ones, but we but there are a number of issues where we're not aligned. So the obvious one would be, um, well, for me, obviously not for everyone in government, um, would be gender, the gender recognition reform. Obviously, they were, you know, that was a significant issue of policy red lines, if you like, for them. I felt that if we hadn't have been in coalition government with them at the time, there would have been more wiggle room to perhaps accept amendments, you know, particularly amendments that would have prevented, you know, rapists changing, you know, so there was there were some serious issues of safeguarding that were not addressed. And possibly, I mean, we'll never know this now, but possibly had we not been in a coalition, we might have had more, more opportunity to address those. But I felt 
you know, that because the Greens had a very hard line on this, they didn't want to accept any amendments of any kind. And that led to the position that we ended up in where, you know, that I felt was a very flawed piece of legislation that's gone on to be blocked by the Section 35. Now, another one would be roads infrastructure. You know, the SNP has made some promises to people in the north of Scotland about dueling projects on various roads, so particularly the A9 and the A96. And, um, you know, green policy on this is that I think they don't want to, you know, spend more money on roads. They would rather spend that money. They have different priorities and they would rather spend that money in other areas. I feel if we've made, if the SNP have made promises about this for some time now, and I think we've had manifest commitments on this for maybe 10 years or more, that we really need to be delivering on that because otherwise you get yourself into a position where people feel they can't trust you anymore. And I'd always felt that we had a good level of trust with the public and, you know, the public did trust us if we said we were going to do something that we went and did it. That's important in politics. So I want to, I've made a commitment that I, you know, if I'm the first minister that I'll put that on my, you know, my priority list for the first few days to get, get progress on that and get that, those projects moving. And also because of safety, you know, People are dying on those roads on a regular basis. You know, the safety record is appalling. And so, so we need to look at that as, a, as a, an important issue that we need to resolve. So there's, there's a couple of areas there. So we're obviously, we are different political parties. You know, the SNP got 45% of the vote at the last election. The Greens got four. Um, so I suppose what I'm saying is that we need to review this, make sure it's working for the, you know, the SNP membership. And also, is it working in terms of what we're delivering to the wider public? So um, I haven't managed to speak to, I did ring Patrick Harvey. I didn't quite say the right thing on TV. I didn't quite finish what I should have said, which was I had called everybody, but not everyone had called me back. And I had called Greens, but they hadn't returned the call. So um, it would probably be good if I could get to speak to them. Um, but they, I have seen reports in the media saying that they wouldn't work with me. So obviously we've got that, there's that dynamic is in there as well. And they said they wouldn't work with Kate or, or I. So, you know, because of our views on, on various things, they think that's a red line. So it may be the case that, you know, if Kate wins or if I win, we get to the coalition and then the Greens decide that they don't want to be part of it anymore. And that's up to them. You know, I would be happy to continue it, but I think it has to be right for the SNP and in terms of what we want to you know, deliver for the people as well. Oil and gas obviously would be another area where we're maybe not quite as aligned. And how do SNP members feel about the coalition? You know, how do they feel about Lorna Slater and Patrick Harvey getting more prominence than a lot of SNP leading politicians? Yeah. Well, we haven't asked them for a while. So uh, we haven't asked them since before the deal was struck. So I think there's an argument, and this is what I would like to do, is go back to the membership and let them help us review whether that this is something that we should carry on with. Um, but I think there is some just, I mean, I would, I'm picking up, I went to the Northeast first of all, when I first started the campaign, I went straight up to the Northeast because I had been picking up that there was disquiet up there um, in terms of the road projects, in terms of oil and gas, the messaging, you know, that was coming up from an SNP Green government had changed and you know an industry well and a workforce that's maybe that's a better way to put it a workforce it's obviously a big workforce in scotland well-paid jobs you know that will be challenging to replace it's not to say you couldn't replace them you can but it, it's going to be challenging felt you know that i think that the snp government had been previously supportive but were perhaps not expressing as much support for them anymore now i want to i wanted to sort of put a bit of water, clear blue water between me and that that sort of sentiment and to, to make the case to say that, you know, that workforce is very important to Scotland, it's very important to the economy, it's very important to communities up and down, particularly in the north and the northeast. And we can't stand by, shut down, you know, the oil industry in Scotland, throw everyone out of work when we haven't replaced it with real jobs and then still be importing oil. You know, it's been produced in countries where they don't have the human rights record, the environmental standards and so on. To me, that doesn't make any sense. 
So, uh, you know, and I, but the Greens probably would not agree with me on that. And what about the wider independence movement? Obviously, the, the SNP is really the, the by far the biggest player and, and by far the, the most powerful and influential and, you know, the party that brought Scotland to the brink of independence and may well yet get it over the line. But there are all sorts of other groups, the Scottish Greens and... Uh, you, you mentioned the early sort of socialist parties that are in favour of um, independence as well and things like Wings Over Scotland. And, uh, you know, there's a whole sort of diaspora, really. I mean, how do you feel about the SNP's relationship with other elements? I mean, are, are there parts of the wider independence movement that you think the SNP should be more involved with or less involved with? I don't, I don't my my perception of this is that the SNP does not have a good relationship with the wider movement at the moment. And I want to change that because I see that as being important. You know, I, I came through the yes, you know, the grassroots yes campaign. That's one of the reasons I'm here because that, you know, I got involved in the, the yes campaign and I thought it was great. You know, I thought there was, you know, really good elements of that grassroots campaign that we should definitely build on for success for next time. And I'm very firmly of the opinion that Scottish independence is not about one person and it's not even about one political party. You know, it's about everybody. And so, so I, I do, I feel very strongly about that. And I actually have already started to reach out to different parts of the movement. So the, the other pro anti parties, but also the civil side as well. So people that are involved in, and there is a sort of an existing structure that's similar to sort of an independence convention type thing. So I've reached out to them. I've reached out to, you know, believe in Scotland. I'm talking to, um, I haven't quite managed to set up the meeting, but I'm sort of um, talking to Scott, you know, and Asians for yes. You know, so there's all, all these different groups that were involved last time. And I've started to try and reach out to people and talk to them. And they're all quite excited. You know, they're saying, no, you know, no, we haven't had anyone from the SNP who's called us to have these conversations. So I think it is really important. I think we should definitely be doing it. There was another part to your question, but I think I've forgotten what I think, it I think was. I've forgotten it as well. But <laughs> is it true? And I, I'm, I'm, I, I realise I'm going off Wikipedia here, so I'm, 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 um, I'm a hostage to fortune. But is it true that... Part of what got you into this whole thing was that you were at a dinner party in 2012 with your husband who presumed you were going to vote no. And that's what, in a, in a way, sort of triggered you to look into it. And actually, you were yes. Yeah. So, I, I well, so I was brought up in Scotland since I was 10 and then I moved down to England. So I think I did have a strong... They always say you're more Scottish when you're away, don't they? They have that sort of cliche. Yeah. And I think that is true. So um, my parents were from Glasgow. I'd never lived there. I'd been brought up in Bigger until I was 10. And then we moved to Devon. And then I went to university in the Midlands and then lived in London. So I spent a long, I was lived in London, um, lived in England for a long time, probably about 18 years in total. And, um, but definitely had that sort of strong sense of Scottish identity and could recognise the differences perhaps between, you know, maybe Scotland and political differences between Scotland and England and had a kind of a sense of that. And so I'd always felt that Scotland was a country. Um, and, you know, had that sort of sense of Scottish identity being quite strong. But I hadn't ma matched that up to the sort of political desire for an independent Scotland, which obviously would be represented by the SNP as a political party, because I'd lived away for so long. And I guess I hadn't been watching it, although I was interested in politics. I hadn't kind of got into that point. So, yes, we were at, we were out and it was 2012. And it was that point where you had to know what you were. You had to have an answer to that question. You know, how are you going to vote? And um uh, my husband, my ex-husband now, we've split up subsequently. Um, but I will say it wasn't to do with his political views. Um, and uh, uh, so, yeah, so he's he's English. So my kids are half English. And uh, he people said to us, oh, how are you going to vote? And my husband was like, oh, yes, we'll be voting no. And I said, hang on a minute. 
And I said, actually, I don't think I will be voting no. And yeah, I went off, just did a bit of research and came back. And and uh, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm a yes voter. So then he encouraged me to get involved though. So he said, right, well, if you, you know, you're interested in politics, this is the biggest thing that's going to happen in, in the Scottish political landscape, probably for decades, you should get involved. But I think maybe he thought I was going to get involved in the no campaign. And also I went and joined the yes campaign instead. So, yeah. So. Uh, he's obviously not here to defend himself, but um, do you yeah. think... And also, I was just going to say, I forgot to say, that's what I was going to say about the unity thing. This is kind of a joke, really, but you know how all the pro indie bloggers are always usually fighting each other to the death online, but I've even managed to unite them. So they're, they're, uh, they're going to, they think they're going to support me. So, yeah. So I, I think that shows, you know, there's a bright future here for uniting the movement. But, you know, you, you, you after you got involved in the referendum campaign, you, you then become an MSP pretty quickly. You're in government soon after that. You know, you rose very quickly. Now you're standing to be the first minister of Scotland. Do you think you'd have always gone into politics eventually, but in a way the referendum brought that date forward? Or do you think without it, perhaps you you never would have stood for office? I don't know the answer to that question. I was, I, I was um, probably, I now realise I was probably a weird teenager in that I can remember exactly where I was when I heard the news that Thatcher had gone. Right. That make, probably makes me a weird 17 year old. Right. You don't realize that at the time. You just think you're interested in politics. So, yeah, I did a politics degree. I did. I did international relations, which is like international politics. So I was definitely interested in politics. And I definitely did think I would like to go into politics when I was in my 20s. But I didn't know anyone. So I didn't know MPs or I wasn't a member of a political party. And I wasn't I think I just didn't know how to get from where I was to you know where I needed to be. Didn't understand about how parties worked or you know, that a usual route in, for instance, would be to join and then work for an MP and then kind of, I didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And so I just, I had to get a job and I just got a job in another industry and just carried on. So I didn't really think about it again for years. So I, I can't, so I don't know, I, probably not, because I think being in, involved in the S campaign gave me that sort of active politics. I had joined the SNP prior to that, actually. And um, that's how then I then started to understand how would you go forward? What would you need to do? You know, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so I don't know. I don't know. We'll never there's know. so many. I mean, in any career, in any life, there are there are yeah. various decisions that have unintended consequences. But let's say you'd have stayed in England, yeah, and and then had gone on your political journey there. And even if from I'm afar you'd have agreed with Scottish independence, obviously yeah. there wouldn't have been a, a, an option for you south of the border. You're going to ask me what party I would be in if I was still living in England. I'm such a predictable interviewer, but yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, we can go by how I used to vote. So, yeah, when I was in England, I used to vote Labour. So if that gives you an idea, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's so, you know, there's so many, it's amazing how life can turn in a way. And and, and mm -hmm. there's something really inspirational about it, that you can end up in all these different places and based on decisions that perhaps themselves weren't political. But your kids are obviously half English. Do they ever say to you, oh, mummy, don't dare you break up the United Kingdom? You know, we... No, they're both, uh, they're, they're both pro-Indy. Um, so they've just gone off to uni. So they went off to uni in September. So it's twins. And they went off to uni in September. And um, they're not into politics, though. I will say that. So I did say to one of my sons, oh, I'm going to be appearing at a hustings in your university town. Would you like to come along? And I was told that he would just meet me later. That was OK. <laughs> like, oh, OK, well. then. Yeah. So not interested in politics at all. But um, but yeah, they're both pro-independence. They both can see the, the rationale behind it. So, yeah. And is it is it difficult um, being a parent, a politician in 2023? I think balancing parenting with, you know, particularly younger children and any job is, is tough. Any any parent of small children will tell you that um, it's, it's tough. And I think we don't have as much support um, 
And often the childcare falls to women. So it's often the, the, the mother that has to take time off work if the child is sick and can't go to nursery or whatever. So I think that, you know, it often only works if you've got a lot of family support around you so that when you can't send a child to nursery, you've still got a backup because they can go to granny or something like that. So, yeah, I think it is challenging for sure. Yeah, my, obviously, because mine are grown up now, they don't need that kind of constant input from me. You know, in fact, they very rarely phone. So I don't, I haven't, since they've gone off to uni, I haven't seen them very much. They're, I've obviously done a good job. They're off and they're, they're happily making their own way in life, which is the way it should be. Well, they value their independence in more ways than one. They are yeah. independent of the truth, uh, meaning of the word. Ash, this has been a, a real pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Well, there you go, Ash Regan. Um, if you're an SNP member, you've got a couple of weeks to get your ballot back in whichever way that you can, presumably convert electronically in post and text. I have no idea actually how the process is run, but hopefully that's um, been helpful. And of course, to the wider public as well, if Ash becomes First Minister, you can see how it would be different to Hamza Youssef or Kate Forbes and indeed uh, Nicola Sturgeon. So the rest of the contest, I'm sure, will continue to be fascinating. And we will talk about it on the 3rd of April with Ruth Davidson live at the Duchess Theatre. Of course, Krishnan Guru Murthy is the next show on the 20th of March. And just a reminder, on the 17th of April, Jess Phillips, 22nd of May, David Blunkett, 5th of June, Philip Hammond, and more guests to be announced uh, throughout, uh, well, in the coming days. Uh, follow me on Twitter, at Matt Ford, if you want to find out who those guests are first, because it always goes up there, uh, because well, it's just quicker. So thank you for downloading this. Please leave a five-star written review. Share it amongst your family, friends, and the wider public. And uh, I'll see you soon. ta Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.